Hi, everyone. We're back with another glorious episode from the Football Ramble Patreon archives. Today, it's from the Teams of Our Lives, a series Andy and I put out every week. We take a look back at some of the definitive sides from the history of football, exactly as the name suggests. Today, it's a certain special one, and his Italian treble wins. A title under threat tonight from football's favourite party pooper, Jose Mourinho. Drama in the last ten minutes. In due cure de ce temps, que Barbelle, l'Italie campione d'Italia, l'Italie campione d'Italia, per il quinto anno consecutivo, Francesco per Massimo Moratti e la festa del popolo nero azzurro. Wait by Lucio, who else? Barcelona are beaten. Inter Milan will go to Madrid, and Jose Mourinho's moment has come again. In this moment, uh, not not many words to describe what I feel because uh, I'm so happy, I'm so proud. At the same time, I'm so sad because um, almost for sure is my last uh, my last game with uh, with Inter. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the teams of our lives with me, Marcus Speller, and him, Andy Brassel. Yes. Yes, indeed. Today, we've got a big one. We've got a big old blockbuster team for you in the form of Jose Mourinho's Inter 2009-10 season. Treble winners, Andy. That's what we're focusing on today. Ooh, baby. First ever Italian treble winners as well, which is big. Very, very big indeed. The only Italian winning treble side, Andy. Yeah, yeah. At the time of recording. Don't even have to say that because it's not going to change anytime soon. You wouldn't have thought. (laughs) You wouldn't have thought. Yes, one of the dirty dozen uh, Super League sides. But before all that uh, nonsense they were tangled up in, they were the best side in Italy. Because Juventus have had such a period of domination, one can forget that Inter also had a period of dominance, Andy Brassel, before that. Yes, although whether it would have happened without Calciopoli is a different question, isn't it? It's a different question. Because um, when we talked in our recent episode about uh, Olympique de Marseille of the 1993 Ligue 1 title being not awarded, that was not a problem in Serie A because you had titles being retrospectively mm-hmm. awarded to Inter, didn't you? Yeah. You got, yeah. Which is, which is a... An interesting thing. They are down as 2006 champions, despite not actually winning it on the pitch. Yeah, no, well, but it is... Any time Juventus are... I say they weren't mugged off. It was the correct decision. <laughs> it's always quite pleasing. But Mancini's Inter um, were a good side and they'd, they 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 won the league, as you, as you say there. But they'd, they'd perhaps flattered to deceive a little bit in European in the European Champions League because they had a, a good squad. Yeah, they had a good squad. They had a good set of players. There's no yeah. doubt about that. And then Mourinho came along after Chelsea when, uh, and of course, he'd won the, the cup at Porto. He hadn't done so at Chelsea, but yeah. you know we all remember that first um, period at Chelsea, winning the league for the first time in goodness knows how long. Uh, and then he came in uh, with a big reputation to Inter. And... What was his relationship like with Inter? Would you say he clicked straight away? Were they a good fit? You know what? I think it's a really fascinating question, Marcus. I'm glad Mm. you brought this up because um, 
that phrase about history being written by the winners, I don't think is any more appropriate than it is when we talk about <laughs> Mourinho's spell at Inter. I mean, we think of him as Mr. Three Years. He was only two years at Inter. And a lot of that was quite attritional. His relationship uh, with his team, in, in a way, sort of going before what happened at Real Madrid and partly predicting it. Certainly his relationship with the press and him and the Italian press did not mm. get on wonderfully well. Mm. Whereas... Uh, every British journalist, it seemed, sort of held, hung off his every word and very much enjoyed his intrinsic quotability. That is not something that's particularly valued to the same extent in in, in Italy. And, and mm-hmm. that made a huge difference. And we'll, we'll come back to that relationship mm-hmm. in, in a bit. But when I was talking about a few key moments, really, deciding the way that his spell at Inter is is seen. The Champions League is everything to it. Without that Champions League, and we'll come to it, they played well in the final um, in, in Madrid against against a good Bayern team, a good but somewhat scatty Bayern team. Mm-hmm. Not the best team Bayern have ever had by any stretch of the imagination, but a very exciting one under Louis van Gaal. Um, if they don't win that, the Mourinho legacy looks completely different completely different not but not just not just not just a little bit different but completely different yeah it's a big names though in that in that buying side but we'll get to mm. that um i forget um how much business inter did in this season and you're right mm. I, I sort of think that Mourinho was there for perhaps longer than what he was but this season because a lot was, happened isn't it yeah so much happened mm. And you're right when you talk about the, his relationship with the press and uh, and so on. I think Mourinho, we're all really... Perhaps what we want from Mourinho, or maybe what he wants from us, I don't, I don't quite know, mm. um, is that first period at Chelsea. When he came along, he, he'd won the Champions League, of course, with Porto, with a side that, you know, didn't see, think it would be possible. Certainly not nowadays, but um, it was still... Uh, you wouldn't have tipped them to win the cup at the start no. of that season uh, or any season in the Champions League. Uh, he does that, but of course that's away from from where we are. It's tucked away in Portugal. He then comes to England. He wins Chelsea league titles and, and cups. Uh, and then he goes to Inter. And Mourinho at, at Chelsea in his, in, his, in his time there, I can't remember people moaning too much about the quality of the football. You were just caught up in the personality of the man, the quotes yeah. and all the rest of it. When he went to Inter, there was bigger expectation. At Chelsea, not a free hit. That's not quite right. But they wanted him to take them to the next level. And he did. Um, they didn't want him to maintain what they have uh, and whatnot. And, and at Inter, they obviously wanted him to do better in European competition. But they were a title-winning side and perhaps, well, not perhaps on the world stage or the European stage, have a bigger reputation than Chelsea. Certainly they did yeah. uh, in those days. So when he came in, uh, and at the start of this season that we're focusing on, 09-10, Samuel Etu came in for, for Ibrahimovic, went to Barcelona, of course, and Etu came in. Diego Melito came in, as did Thiago Motta. Lucio was brought in to bolster the defence. Wesley Snyder as well. These are all players who played such a crucial part. 
um, in in delivering these this this treble. I mean, Goran Pandev joined in January two thousand and ten. I thought he was there from the start of this season. Mm. That was quite surprising to me looking back at this. But these players, every single one I've just mentioned there, were crucial. He got them in. He targeted the right players. And they did some very, very canny business, it would turn out. Because, as I say, these players playing in his preferred 4-3-3, they bought into what he was doing and ran their asses off for him Mm. and allowed him to shape and mould them for that season. And the rewards are there to be seen by everybody. But but you're right, Marcus, it evolved through the season. I think that's something quite Mm. important to underline. Now... Um, going back to his mission to improve their profile in Europe, that, that was the only reason he was there, really, mm. because they could win the league under Mancini, no problem, yeah. um, especially in a post-Juventus world, um, with them still very weakened. Um, but I think the interesting thing is when you see it, say, for example, what finished Mancini off is that really limp Champions League exit to Manchester United. Mm. After after that point, into a like, yeah, you're not going to get us any further in the Champions League. And they, mm-hmm. they had to go to Mourinho. But Mourinho was never really invited for, as you say, for the quality of his football. Mm-hmm. It was just about winning winning the, the, the Champions League. And he had that, the Midas touch back about. then. Yeah, he did. Um even though there've been some near misses in, which you know, still, it's a cup competition. You know, it still yeah. happens to, to to coaches at the the peak of their power. But interestingly, given that Mourinho's vibe even then was win at all costs, what really opens up two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten is that Samueletto Ibrahimovic exchange transfer. Yeah, that's I mean, so crucial. Obviously, it looks horrendous for Barcelona in retrospect which given some of the deals they've made in recent years <laughs> is saying something really yeah, isn't yeah. it that, that people still remember that but of course um, Ibrahimovic was highly valued in that transfer um, and Eto was really undervalued in that transfer mm-hmm. now we talk about this season with uh, Luis Suarez going to Atletico how he's powered by revenge. I think there's something of that in Eto as well, <laughs> who remember um, at the start of 2008, 2009, Guardiola told him, I don't want you. And he still stuck around, played a brilliant season. Yep. Barca won the treble. Yeah. Um, and he was again so crucial. You cannot underestimate how important Eto is in that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the interesting thing, when we go on to him at Inter, and apart from the fact that Eto not only was underrated, I think continues to be very underrated mm-hmm. in elite level um, strikers in the European game because he, he was brilliant and, you mm-hmm. know, travels in successive seasons for oh. two successive teams. It's glorious. It, it's incredible. But of course, he ends up playing a very different role yes. for Inter than the one he played at Barcelona. But the interesting thing is, it's a role that evolves during the season. Mm-hmm. And I, I think people look at that, actually, understandably, I suppose, when um, Mourinho goes back to Chelsea for the first time in um, spring 2010. Um, and Eto in that game at Stamford Bridge, plays a sort mm-hmm. of right side of the three. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk at the time of uh, Eto'o wouldn't do it for anyone else, etc. I don't think it's just about Mourinho. I think it's about Eto'o doing whatever it takes to mm-hmm. to get that trophy. It's in him. And he did do a fantastic job. He scored the winner at Stamford Bridge in that game, of course, when most, most of the rest of the season... Diego Melito is not only scoring a lot of goals, he's scoring a lot of important goals. Oh man, he was phenomenal that year. It's incredible. It's incredible. And we'll come to all the big mm-hmm. goals that he scored in a minute amongst those 30 odd. Um but but yeah, I think we we, we think of Eto because of that, of as as being like nailed to the right touchline all that season, which is not correct because it's it's not how he started the season. And it was for very specific missions. And, and sometimes when you got into the back half of the season, when as well, they were in a real battle for the title. That's what made the run-in so mm-hmm. exhilarating. The fact yeah. that not only do um, Inter have the possibility of winning the Champions League, there's the Coppa Italia, which could complete the treble. Um, it's the fact that they've got genuine competition from Claudio Ranieri's Roma. And of course, there's the thing between Ranieri and Mourinho anyway. It's the fact that Mourinho has always diminished him and Uh taken the piss out of him um, after he succeeded him at Chelsea and really not given him the respect he deserved. About five games from the end of the season, it looks as if Roma are in. They're absolutely flying, especially after they beat Inter at the Stadio Olimpico in, what, April. Um, but when you look at... The, the other thing I was going to say, when you look at the back end of that that season, domestically, Balotelli was starting a lot mm-hmm. of games. And what worked really well between Balotelli and Eto, And I know Balotelli is... Because his career has fizzled out a little bit, people look at him as a sort of joke figure, which is... I think that the reason there's such disappointment, certainly within Italy, of what's happened to Balotelli, at this point, he looked like he was going to be- become one of the best players in the world. Yeah, and yeah. he was a player who was really, really important for you know a, a, a team that was, if not the best in Europe, pretty close. And I think when Eto was ostensibly playing as a, a wide player. And that, there was so much interchange between him and Balotelli. Balotelli could go out to the right-hand side, mm-hmm. get balls in. Um, he just looked such, not just such a such a natural talent, but someone who was so intuitive and connected with these incredibly high-class players. I, I honestly thought at that point that if you'd have told me that ba- Balotelli was going to be at Manchester City two years later, you could have knocked me down with a feather. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, yeah, no, you, you, you're spot on. And your your point about Samoletto, I mean, again, you just can't underestimate the tactical awareness and intelligence of him and uh, in, in that side. So they beat Roma to the title by two points and Roma also finished runners-up in the Coppa Italia. So he did get one over on... Uh, Ranieri that season, although or two, we forget, well, or, yeah, yeah, true. Lest we forget that Ranieri did win the league with Leicester City, so uh, let's not just leave that there. But I, I actually um, was with the other Ramble lads. We went to see Inter play. Well, it was more to see Barcelona play 
in the uh, Champions League. And they played Inter in the group 1-2-0. Fairly routine stuff. This was Barcelona under Guardiola. They were, we remember just how flipping marvellous they were. They were odds on to defend their Champions League crown. No team had done it at this point. They'd, of course, won the final against Manchester United the, the previous season, and they were looking even better. Even though Ibrahimovic, as as the season would show, was a little bit of a fish out of water there for a number of reasons uh, on the pitch and off the pitch. But they but they brushed into a side that night in the group, and the fans were were singing, you know, unsavory things to Mourinho and calling him the translator and, and all that kind of stuff. And this was when certainly I began to realise and find out about the relationship between Mourinho and Barcelona and mm. through, I don't know, sort of proxy Guardiola as well. Uh, and as the rounds would go on, you mentioned they beat Chelsea and Mourinho was again, he was getting in his groove. Before that game against Stamford Bridge, he said, I normally want, get what I want at Stamford Bridge. He had a plan. It was executed to perfection. They beat CSK Moscow in the quarters. And then we come to the semifinals against Barcelona. And I think this is the defining performance for this for this interside. And I wish you every bit of luck getting through the next couple of minutes without <laughs> saying Icelandic ash cloud. <laughs> well, they won the first leg 3-1 and they and that was the thing is that Barcelona had to take the coach there, didn't they? And it took them a while. It's like the jolly boys outing. It was with, with Milan instead of Margate at the end. They they couldn't they couldn't fly there because of the Icelandic ash cloud, which was which was quite the time. People having extended holidays and all this kind of stuff because they couldn't get home and blah blah blah. blah. But they lost that first leg three one, and it was a real surprise because again this was Guardiola's Barcelona in full flow, looked absolutely magnificent, and Messi looked untouchable. But I think it was his fellow countryman Zanetti. Did he not put him on the other side to deal with Messi for, yes. for cutting in purposes? And Chelsea, Chelsea did that with uh, Bozingwa, actually, okay. against Messi at Camp Nou once to, to quite mm. a decent effect. And they, these little touches, and by then, the side is defined. You've got the back four um, of, uh, of Samuel, big Walter Samuel and mm. Lucio, centre-halves. Um, Julio Cesar was in goal um, at, the, at this point. I think that's the thing. We can talk about how good Barcelona were, Marcus. Yeah. But actually, if you go through this inter side, yeah. not only is it very experienced, and that's why the moment that Mourinho walks, the whole thing collapses like a pack of cards. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, the, the interesting thing is, we can talk about how good Barcelona were. At this point, there is an argument that Julio Cesar is the best goalkeeper in the world. Yeah. At this point, there is an argument that Eto'o is the best striker in the world. Mm-hmm. At this point, Wesley Snyder probably should have won the Ballon d'Or that year. He was he was amazing. Mm-hmm. All these things contribute, I think. And when you talk about that semi-final, actually, they were very well organised. They were clinical. They took mm-hmm. their chances. Um Julio Cesar also had a very, very good game in that. Yeah. No, you're right. And, uh, and uh, yeah, Zanetti was left back for this game, absolutely. But, you know, you look at the, the players, Maicon, Mota, Cambiasso was in there, Pandev. Um, these are, these are, they were seasoned pros, but they were fighters as well. And I think mm. that's the thing is that, as you, you mentioned the, the word attrition earlier, 
this was a team who fought tooth and nail to get over the line in every competition they were in. But they had the quality as well. Uh, as you mentioned, with someone like Schneider, who looked fantastic. Yeah, he had two midfielders behind him who were going to do all the dirty work. But or he was one after the first twenty minutes at Camp Nou. <laughs> well, yeah, and we'll get to that. But, but but Schneider looked great and and was at his creative best. And that's the Wesley Schneider that that I certainly try and remember because mm. you know, latterly in his career, you know, maybe people suggested he was a bit lazy and a bit out of shape and so on. But in this side, he was. He was absolutely phenomenal. And you had the the, the runners up front as well, Etu uh, pulling um, his you know pulling the strings and and his weight uh, and Melito who was who was absolutely deadly. Um, he was, and you look at him; he's he's not particularly tall. No, he's not particularly fast. He's not particularly muscly. He is the ultimate, or was in this season at least, the ultimate penalty box sniffer yeah. but i think that is the incredible thing about this interseason that it feels like a moment in time mm. and it is propelled by the fact that you've got these i guess stories of seizing the moment it's also propelled by the the, the, the fact that this was their one chance i felt for mm. this squad yes. um because Definitely. there was tension around Mourinho, obviously because the team was getting a little bit old. And you look at the way Mourinho behaves in that season. Mm. We actually think of him as like the coolest of customers, don't we? Yeah. Particularly at that point, totally in control. Uh-huh. As you say, the European Cup, Champions League is his natural habitat and all that sort of stuff. I went to the press conference before the um, return leg with Chelsea. And it was it was an incredible scene. It was, it was in um, a room at Stamford Bridge sort of divided down the middle with British journalists on one side and Italian mm-hmm. journalists on the other. And um, the British journalists are delighted to have him back, lap up some Jose quotes like he was saying about him getting what he wants at Stamford Bridge and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. The relationship with the Italian um, media could not have been any different. Like someone would um, ask him, so why did you um, substitute Stankovic at the weekend? He'd go, mind your own business. I'm the coach. I don't have to tell you that. And, um, uh, you know, someone else would ask, so, um, okay, what's your, um, what's your team news for tomorrow night? Or, um, you know, is uh, Zanetti going to be fit, for example? And he'd go, well, just write what you normally like. You normally make it up anyway. And that, like the tension was unbelievable. And then I think by the time you get to the, the end of the season, so, the chronology is you have the Coppa Italia final first. Mm-hmm. Milito scores the winner, obviously, yes. against Roma. Final game of the season. Mm-hmm. Now they've clawed back the points they dropped against Fiorentina, what, five games before the end of the season, where um, Julio Cesar makes a big clangor. Um, I think it's Per Kolstrup who scores the equaliser after he comes out for a cross and totally misses it. Mourinho really loses his shit with him afterwards. And they have this argument that leads to, if you look at the last games of those season, Julio Cesar wearing a different goalkeeping top. Because when they're having this argument, Mourinho is saying, your defenders can't see you because you're wearing a black goalkeeper top. Oh. And so they've got a black one. The reserve one is a grey one. So what they do is they get um, a yellow into training top 
mm-hmm. they customize it, put his name and number on the back and the correct sponsors in the right place. And he wears it over his black goalkeeping top. Oh, uh, that's uh, right. And that's the one that he ends up wearing going forward from from there because he's saying you need to wear something bright so that your defenders can see you and don't clatter into you and then i guess the last bit of tension because you get to the final day before the champions league final when they're playing siena who they always seem to be playing at the business end of the season they're away at siena and it's nil nil at half time roma are already winning by this point so at half time roma are champions Mm. Um, Mourinho has this famous reported speech in the, the, the dressing room where he's going, how can you not win this title? So Juventus have disappeared off the face of the earth. There's no competition. How, what, what, more, what more encouragement do you want? How can you not win this title? <laughs> and then anyway, they go out there for the second half. Brilliant run by Zanetti from mm. this sort of inside left position, sets up Milito. He scores the goal goes on to win. But Mourinho is on the touchline and he's backing further away from the touchline. He's so tense. So, so tense. And he's almost being like pulled in towards the tunnel. And it's one of those tunnels where you go downstairs at the uh, Artemio Franchi where um, Siena play at. And the minute the whistle goes, he just like puts his finger in the air and he's just straight down the stairs. And you look at the players and the players are hugging, they're crying. They've been there before. Like, you know, it's hard to understand Mm -hmm. looking at it from a layman's perspective of why they would be that worked up at winning a title. Of course, it's a close title race, but... Sure. But they were worked up for him. you've You've been here before, but it's partly to do... Mm-hmm. with the environment that he's created. Yeah, and he's thinking that's part two of three done. Yeah. And that's crucial because, as you say, any part of that, yeah, okay, they can they can win the the league and they can win even the cup and the Champions League, you could say. I mean, the Champions League would have been the one out of the three if you could only choose one. Sure. But they needed to do it. And we spoke on a previous podcast that uh, his Porto missed out doing the treble. Uh, against was it Sporting in the Benfica. final or Benfica in the final, mm. and yeah, that would have been. He's that over would have, it. He's over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and so he never had a treble, and it, it, other than the one at Manchester United that he won, but uh, <laughs> uh, he hadn't got it at that point, and uh, and it was so crucial. And one of my favourite uh, celebrations ever from football is that second leg at Barcelona. And it was what a performance. They win the first leg 3-1, of course. Mm. They go they go 1-0 down and, and then Thiago Motta is sent off uh, because Busquets, you know, makes an absolute mountain out of a molehill. And, and Mourinho is fuming. And Mourinho is picking up from where Didier Drogba left off in the, was it the previous season or, or certainly around that time, thinking that, you know, everything's going against them and everything's mm. going for Barcelona. And he can't believe it. And he probably was thinking to himself, if I don't win this game, it would have destroyed Mourinho. I don't know. It, it's a real kind of almost sliding doors moment. What, yeah. were, what would he have done? He needed to beat them because it was always, he pitted himself against them when he was turned down for the job for, in, in, in favour of Guardiola because mm. Guardiola was one of them. And of course, Jonathan Wilson writes very eloquently about this, about Mourinho being the fallen angel of Barcelona and, and, and whatnot. 
and they win the game. Barcelona score late on, which would have been enough, but it was given offside or it was certainly yeah. uh, chalked off. Very marginal offside, yeah. Very marginal offside, but, but the correct decision, if I remember, if I remember right there. And Mourinho, as you say, he is like a coiled spring, although we don't see it that much. He is just sat in, st- stood on the touchline waiting and waiting. And the final whistle goes. And I tell you what, the final whistle goes. A second later, he's like two-thirds of the way across the pitch. Like it, <laughs> He's away. He is running around that stadium celebrating as if he's just got the golden goal. Yes, uh, back in the day. It's a remarkable celebration for a manager. If you think of the touchline running he's done in his career, I think he's done probably 70% of it in Old Trafford 2004 and Camp Nou 2010. Yeah, totally. It's a remarkable celebration for a manager who's basically... It's it's a combination of that's all me, baby, and up yours. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, it really is. It is it is one of the the biggest sort of two fingers to all you lot uh, that you'll ever ever see. He cannot believe even the way he celebrates. His arms up in the air. It is a goal scorer's celebration. It's so so weird, but yet just so amazing at the same time. And he knew really that that was the final. He knew he would get the better of Bayern. Yeah, it's it's funny because I agree they were always a good match for for Bayern because well, I should say Bayern were a good match for them really mm. because Bayern were terrific to watch in the run to the final. Oh yeah, um, you think of like the win on away goals at Old Trafford where yeah, yeah. Robin scores that volley from the corner, <laughs> which is 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 still one of my favourite Champions League goals. But they, they they do concede goals, Bayern. This this Bayern yeah. side, and you could just see into controlling the game better and knocking mm-hmm. them off. And that's exactly what they do. Yeah. Two more goals from Milito, oh, obviously. Lethal, so, absolutely lethal. Not just loads of goals, all the goals that count. You see, he never got a look in in the Ballon d'Or around no. that time. I remember thinking he surely got to be in the conversation. I know Messi and Xavi and Iniesta and all them were, you know, were destined for it, but not even a look in but I Diego Milito. I think you look at this inter-side and almost like the great Bayern side that um, won the Champions League in 2013 when Frank Ribéry was furiously canvassing for himself. Yeah, uh, and, and it all sort of ran aground when um, Cristiano Ronaldo scored that hat-trick in Stockholm after they'd extended the deadline for voting. <laughs> and th- th- they kind of split the vote because they were just too much of a team. Mm. I kind of think this about that Inter as well, because you pointed out Milito, you can point out Eto, you can point out Julio Cesar, you can even point out Zanetti as well as Schneider. Mm. And then you look at the yeah. the, the slightly smaller contributions from Stankovic, Balotelli. Yeah. What about um, Kivu? Pandev. We haven't even mentioned Kivu. Absolutely. You know, he started the final. Absolutely. And we talked about Mykon as well, didn't yeah. we? Uh, Materazzi, who had that, oh. that, that famous embrace with... with yeah. um, uh, Mourinho. Mourinho after the final where he was probably just saying thank god you're going <laughs> <laughs> well that was it yeah they embraced it it wasn't after it was it was when Mourinho was leaving and they and yeah. very very emotional but that's it though with Mourinho that's what you get the intensity and when it's over there is a just this outpouring you know of emotion but fortunately yeah. for Inter and their fans it was one of glorious glorious victory um, and it is a, a season that is certainly in the modern era if not in their entire history is the, the finest that they've ever had and Jose Mourinho was the architect 
Andy, an absolute pleasure talking to you about this one. Um, fondly remembered by some, uh, <laughs> despised uh, by others looking back, but my goodness, it always is a great talking point. Thank you very much, my man. Thank you, Marcus. It's a pleasure as always. You. Absolutely. See you next week, everybody. If you want more Teams of Our Lives episodes, then sign up to our Patreon. There's a load of benefits as part of the $10 a month tier, including Ramble on episodes, live streams, and ad-free Ramble episodes. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash football ramble. We'll be back next week where we're shining the spotlight on some of our favourite episodes from this season across Stacks football shows. So we'll see you then. The Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.